Welcome back, my friends. Today, we are going to be studying once again from the book of Tehillim. We call it Redemption Songs. We're in the midst or near the end of the 119th Psalm. This class is part two for the verses that correspond to the letters Tuf. And before I begin, a reminder, if you aren't yet subscribed, please do so and be sure to enable notifications. Today's class has been sponsored in the merit of a Rafua Shlema, a speedy and complete recovery for Naima Bas Muluk. May the Mishpacha have good news and may long and happy years be her lot. So today's class is entitled Spoken Word. Spoken Word. Why? Aren't all of David HaMelech's words spoken? Is not the book of Tehillim filled with the songful words of the psalmist? Pasuk Kuf Ayin He, verse 171 of Psalm 119. Tabaino Sefosai Tehillah. Tabaino. We know what Sefosai means. Sfosai mean lips. Rashi says, Tabaina means Tidaberna. My lips should speak. The spoken word. What should my lips speak? Tehillah. Your praises. So this is not just about conversation. This is about words being offered as a praise, as a song as a poetic sonnet to God. Why? Key. For you will teach me your statutes. If tabaina means tidaberna, or my words or lips will speak, spoken words, why doesn't it say that? Oh, and by the way, if you were thinking, it's because we needed the letter tough. So David HaMelech yeah, reached out and used some poetry which didn't exactly fit or wasn't precisely necessary because it was really important for him to arrange these words as per the Hebrew letters of the alphabet. If that's what you're thinking, think again. Do you know why? Well, besides the fact that this is divinely inspired, and David HaMelech doesn't cut corners, if you will, or take shortcuts, or sacrifice substance for style. But besides this, the word Tidaberna starts with a tough too. So when David HaMelech uses the words Tabaina, and it means Tidaberna, he uses the terminology of an one or Aina, instead of Dibur, Tabtidabarna, there's got to be something more that's being conveyed to us. Why does, or how does, Tabaina mean Tidaberna anyway? I'm pretty sure most of you outside of this verse have never heard the word Tabaina. To the best of my knowledge, the word Tabaina doesn't show up anywhere else in the entirety 
of our Tanakh. Perhaps we can get a clue when we take a look in the Mitzudot Tzion, who says, Tabaina Inyan Amira. It means spoken. Things said. He says, Kamo Yabia Omer, like a stream of speech. A stream of speech. Like words that flow. Real clarity here is found in the writings of Radak, who says, Tabaina, Inyan Dibur. It means spoken. Something that is uh, talked about aloud. So why is it tabayna? Why don't we use the word tidabarna? Says the Radak. Va'al hasmodas hadibur oimer zehaloshon. Dovra Melech very precisely selected this syntax because it's indicative of a cadence a continuous cadence, a flow of words. Hasmodas hadibur means words spoken or uttered copiously, continuously. The word hatmada is typically translated as diligent. And diligence can be understood in a variety of ways, amongst them to really follow through, to stay on top of something diligently, not to let any grass grow under your feet, proverbially speaking, but to be diligent about something means to stay on it. Continuous involvement. And the Radak says that Dovra Melech selected the word Tabayna because he wanted to convey this notion of continuous speech, which perhaps is what the Mitzudot Tzion meant when he sent us off to the 19th Psalm, the third verse, where we hear about Yabia Omer, a stream of speech, because streams flow continuously rather than intermittently. Rada continues and he says, Kimo, this word is similar to or can be appreciated as a permutation of hamakar, of the source of a well that constantly produces a stream of water. It flows, not intermittently. It flows continuously, or what we would call a continuous flow. So what's David HaMelech saying then? We now know that he isn't just speaking. The spoken word here means spoken, continuously spoken. The word is always being spoken, articulated. We're giving ear to something. There's a stream of speech that continues to flow. Why? What's motivating this sudden profusion of articulation, this stream of speech? So Radak says, when you will teach me your statutes, 
I will praise you with my wisdom continuously. Which almost seems to indicate, he doesn't say I'll praise you with my mouth. He says, I'll praise you with my wisdom. Wisdom, of course, is synonymous with creativity. Intellectual creativity is wisdom. David Amalek says, I'll be in a state of continuous expression, a songful expression, a, a thankful expression, an expression that is ongoing. It's so interesting that Ibn Ezra says, if you save me, then I'll be giving this continuous flow of speech. But he says, On the surface, it sounds like, save me and I'll sing. On a deeper level, it's teach me and I'll sing. So what's really going on here? What does Dabra Melech mean to say when he talks about this continuous speech? Incidentally, why does he talk about his lips? Perhaps we can appreciate the notion of the lips before we go on to answer the bigger question as per the words of the Midrash Shokhatov, also known as Midrash Tilim, on Psalm 35. There, David HaMelech King David says, Kol atzmotai tomarna, all of my essence, all of my being will speak. Hashem Mikamocha, God, who is like you? So the Medrash Tillam records this proverbial conversation between God and Moses and David. And God says to David, Omer la HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, David, Ma'ato Oisali, what uh, precisely do you propose here? When you say, Kolatz Moisai, all of me, my very being? What does that mean? Omer lei. So David Melech responds and he says, Ani I will praise you with every single limb I have. I have a head. The head is the source of my intelligence. The head reigns supreme over the rest of the body. And that head will be bowed in deference. I will prostrate myself. In prayer, and with my lips, I praise you. So there's this notion of the lips fitting into the larger picture of David HaMelech being in a state of devotion where every fiber of his being expresses itself to God and when we will learn that particular psalm, we'll talk about the notion of kol atzmotai teumarna. It's a Jewish thing. It's a Jewish thing to shake and to shuckle. It's a Jewish thing to get into Torah study. You go to a secular Western library, you could hear a pin drop. You walk into a Beit Medrash where Torah is being studied and you wonder if your hearing won't be shot after a day or two. Everybody is yelling on top of their lungs. It's so animated, it's so vibrant. It's, it's so eclectic and intense. It's not like cool and relaxed. It's not serene. It seethes. And you see that the people that are there are not dispassionate. There is no ivory tower indifference to the material being studied. 
Everybody is passionately engaged, excitedly involved. That's what Torah study looks like. And prayer shouldn't be any different. Real Jewish prayer. Real Jewish prayer is, is vibrant and passionate. Real Jewish prayer is loud and songful. Real Jewish prayer is a collection of people who swing to and fro and are really involved in what they're doing. Prayer where people sit back and watch a performance, it's not really Jewish. I'm not disparaging it. I'm just telling you it's not Jewish. It's a reflection of how other faith systems or cultures pray. Real Jewish prayers are in a shul that's inspired and fueled by Torah true values. Every fiber of my being shakes, shuckles, and gets involved. The Chida has a long piece on this. He says that really this is like the sign of Jewishness. And he talks about various stories of people and communities who are identified as having a Jewish connection because of the way they prayed. Even when praying in another language to a foreign deity, they still prayed as Yidin pray. So Kolat Smoisei includes Tabainas Fasai, a continuous movement of lips. It's interesting to note that many, many great tzaddikim were often seen murmuring from their lips. It is said, although I cannot testify to this personally, I didn't see it, it is said that oftentimes when the Rebbe would walk, the Rebbe's lips would be murmuring. And we believe that he was reciting Torah by heart. Tanya, verses of Tilim, the Rebbe would always, his lips would always be moving. And I've seen other people whose their lips are moving. That's a sign of greatness. It's a sign of continuous involvement. You're talking about somebody who's in a state of devekut, of cleaving to Hashem. It doesn't forget about the presence of Hashem. So much so that they're mouthing words and they're expressing their praise to Hashem constantly. So now we know what tabayna means. We're talking about something that gushes forth, like a stream, like a well, a well of speech. This is not just spoken word. This is, this is a, a well of speech gushing forth. And it's key because Now, it's interesting that when it comes to the notion of key, which usually means because, Mitzudas David says, Ka'asher, as, as you teach me your statutes. And perhaps he's troubleshooting here because what's the because? My lips will pour forth in praise because I understand? So he says, well, it's as I understand. The question is less sharp, but the question still remains. Why is understanding necessarily the thing that will engender a gushing forth of speech? Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech answers this question in an extraordinary way. He says, we all understand that when we appreciate or apprehend a notion of Torah, that we can identify with it. We relate and affiliate with it. 
It becomes an extension of who we are. When we don't understand something, we can go through the motions, but we can't self-identify. We can't, we can't think that way because it doesn't really saturate our thought. We can't look at things in that perspective because it doesn't really offer us perspective per se. But, says the Alshech, Oz, then, then when tilamdeni, the word tilamdeni means to learn, and to learn means to understand. Tilamdeni chukecha. When I learn your statutes, when I understand your statutes, hachoymer yismach. Then not only will the spirit soar, but even the crass physical, mundane element, the choymer. We talk about matter. We talk about the notion of our physical, material existence. Yismach v'yalez b'Torah finds joy in the Torah. You know, when somebody's happy, it's not only in their head, it changes even bodily function. The Torah tells us that the third and select of the patriarchs, Jacob, was heading towards a nasty place called Choron. He was concerned. He had been mugged, didn't really have a penny to his name, knew that he was going into an environment that was not only alien, but going to be downright hostile to his values. He wasn't excited. And he lay down to sleep. And when sleep overcame him, an extraordinary prophetic vision unfolded before his very eyes. There was a ladder and angels going up and angels coming down. And God speaks and he promises Yaakov, Father Jacob, that he will be with him and that things will go well for the family that he is destined to build encapsulates the fortunes of this future nation with the word ufaratsta to powerfully spread forth in all directions. What happens the next morning? Yaakov wakes. He says, I didn't realize this was such a holy place. He creates a monument, a matseva. He pours oil, and that's a subject for a different class. I actually have a class on that. Why he set the stone and poured the oil. But without going into it, the interesting thing is that it says, Vayisa Yaakov es Raglov. Yaakov lifted his feet. That's a funny way to speak. And Rashi tells us that the Pshuto Shomikr, the straightforward meaning is, Mishinis Baser. Once he got the good news, the good news that he would in fact succeed. Nasekal, it became easy, Lelechas. It was easy. His feet were lifted off the ground. In other words, when we're in a buoyant mood, when we're joyous about something, when we're upbeat about something, our feet literally lift off the ground. We don't just walk, we, we dance, we skip. Because feeling good about something changes our gait. It changes the cadence in our movements. It just changes everything. 
Alshech says, when the choymer, when the crass matter of our physical existence begins to rejoice with Torah, and it can happen to you, it really can. You don't have to be a tzaddik. I'm not. <laughs> not in any way, shape, or form. But I really do derive pleasure when I study Torah. And I derive most pleasure when I have the privilege of teaching it to you. It feels good. It really does. It feels good to understand something when I didn't understand it before. It feels good to learn to identify with and appreciate a Torah precept, a Torah concept. So David HaMelech says, Afilu ha-chukim. We speak here even of the statutes. She'ein cheshkom beguf. The proclivity of flesh is not to embrace things like this. It's not natural to us. It's, it's, it's strange. It's unnatural, to be sure. But when you're able to identify with it, when, when you find yourself in a common rhythm with those statutes, then something changes. So when there's ein cheshkom beguf, when you don't feel that rhythm, that excitement. And it's because heder tamam, because you can't understand or appreciate it. So you don't feel that joy. But when you get past that, and that which you couldn't understand or appreciate is now something you affiliate and identify with, oz yosisus fosai. Then David says, even my lips hachumriam, even my lips of flesh and blood, begin to murmur, begin to gush forth in speech and joy and praise, in appreciation. So interesting, he uses both the language of the scripture as well as Rashi's words. I'm mouthing, I'm speaking, I'm giving ear to joy. I'm expressing joy, a flow, of a, a flowing expression. But that's when you teach me, Chukecha. So Hashem, open my eyes, open my heart, says the psalmist. Enable me, a mere mortal of flesh and blood, to understand and appreciate your statutes, divine statutes, statutes that strain the outer reaches of human fathomability. Enable me to understand and appreciate those, and I will gush forth in praise and in speech that is filled with appreciation and acknowledgement. When that happens, when I understand them, so then when I understand them, when you explain it to me, when I feel like I can recapture the Sinaiic experience, then then out of the holiness of that moment, it's a holy moment when you appreciate and identify with Torah truism. Then it'll, so to speak, acquire. It'll grab hold of It'll co-opt my very material existence. So now we know what this means. 
Now we appreciate and understand what David Melech was yearning for when he petitioned, beseeched, begged and cajoled, Tabayna Sfasai Tehila. He is really asking for something. We're almost promising Hashem. I know I'll gush forth in praise when I can understand the profoundest depths of your Torah. Imagine that. Imagine that being your goal in life. Imagine yearning and pining for an understanding of Torah. Imagine that lighting your candle. It doesn't mean that we rationalize the chukim. It doesn't mean that we say if we understand it, we do it, and if we don't, we don't. That's what the enemies of the Hashmonaim or the Maccabees said. That's the mistake that many of our brothers and sisters tragically made in the period prior to the Hanukkah miracle. What we are saying is that you can learn to appreciate and understand, and that requires help from a higher place. It's a privilege. It's a privilege we don't always merit, but sometimes, as a result of the effort and toil invested, we have an aha moment. We say, ah, so that's what this means. It may come as a result of an experience. It may come as a result of an intellectual epiphany. It may come as a reflection of something you learned in the past, but for some reason, never really understood. There are a variety of ways of how this can suddenly come into sharp focus. You know, all of you have had experiences that suddenly kind of brought things together. And it made you say, ah, so, so that's what this is all about. So that's what this means. Now I'll share an interesting story with you. There was a fellow who I used to, I used to badger about putting on film. I badger everybody about putting on film. <laughs> I used to badger this guy. And he would, you know, grudgingly agree at times. But I, I wasn't getting through to him, so to speak. One Thursday, I came across a video. I, I, maybe it was something Chabad.org had sent out. It was a, a video with the story of a colleague of mine. He's a couple of years older than me. A very highly respected shliach who lives in Munich in Germany. And he and his wife had a child who was Nebuch very sick. There was a story of how this child, who's so autistic, so severely autistic, learned to put on tefillin. It's a beautiful story, a beautiful video. I encourage you to Google it. The family name is Diskin. Beautiful story. They toiled and labored, and how the one thing this child could relate to in the end was tefillin. And it was a very brave thing to do. It's a very brave thing to open their hearts. And this rabbi and Rebetzin shared their experiences, and I was really inspired by it. And I incorporated it into the sermon that I delivered that Shabbos. I don't remember what the sermon was about, but I do remember incorporating this story and making it a central feature. And this fellow happened to be in Shulat Shabbos. And he came over to me after, and he says, I finally understood. Just today, he says, I finally understood what that badgering is all about for the last couple of years. He says, okay, I, I'm going to stop putting on film every day. I'm at Shabbos. I immediately called Rabbi Diskin, and I said, I just want you to know 
that your son and his story have inspired a Jew across the ocean and that somebody's gonna be putting on tefillin every day. And I asked myself what it was that inspired this person and it was something about the notion of a mitzvah that we relate to on a deeper level. It's not just what our mind grasps. It's not just what our heart suffers. There's something, there's something more profound. There's something deeper going on. And this little boy who doesn't have a developed mind as we know it, and doesn't really have the ability to emote as we're familiar with, yet was able to relate to Hashem. He was able to connect and identify with the performance of this mitzvah that inspired somebody. And it should. It's a very inspiring thing. So David HaMelech says, I know. I know when I finally have that aha. I know when I finally understand and appreciate and get the chukim. I know that I will just explode in praise. My lips will continuously pour forth. And that's what he yearned for. That's what he hoped and prayed for. The Ma'am Lois, in his commentary on this verse, he first quotes or introduces us to the interpretation of Rabbeinu Yosef Chiyun. And he says, almost, I guess, paraphrasing both the words, fusing the interpretation that's found in the Mitzudot along with the interpretation found in Adak. He says, La'achar, that's the verse that was quoted by Mitsudot. Like a, like a well that continues to produce this continuous flow. Just continues to pump water out. The water just continues to, to flow forth, gush forth, to stream. So there's this stream of praise that will come. And then the Amalois says something very interesting in it. He has no attribution. He doesn't tell us that it's from any particular scholar or sage. I have a hunch maybe this is the Amalois' own interpretation. It's fascinating. He says like this. He says, David HaMelech is the psalmist. He's always praising Hashem. Every psalm is King David praising God for one thing or the other. David HaMelech was Rogil Loimer Shirois King David was wont to mouth song and praise Al Nitzchonotav Hakabirim on his extraordinary, mighty victories, Negadoivov over his enemies, Al Mapola Seinov on the downfall of those who hated him. Says the Ma'am lawyers. But that's not really what David Amelech's passion was. He never lost an opportunity to express gratefulness. He was always quick to thank and to praise Hashem and to recognize that these were not the deeds of his own hands, but rather a gift, salvation from a higher place. But Ma'am Loy says, David HaMelech yearned and pined more so to be able 
to spend time in a serene and settled kind of environment. Involved and engrossed al the al To immerse himself in Torah study and in passionate, fervent prayer. You know that there's this idea in Judaism. It's perhaps best exemplified with the two Shvatim, the two tribes of Yisachar and Zvulun. Yisachar and Zvulun, both of whom are the sons of Leah, the youngest sons of Mother Leah. So Yisachar, it says, devotes himself to Torah study, and Zvulun devotes himself to commerce. And he makes more money than he needs to provide for his own family. And so Yisvulun provides sustenance, the financial support that Yisachar needs. And Yisachar, who's studying Torah, shares the merit of his Torah success with Zvulun, who spends the lion's share of his time traveling and engaged in commerce. So there's this notion of a partnership. And it's expressed in so many ways. There's different nuances, different, you could call it, ebbs and flow within the Jewish people. There's the members of Am Yisrael who are involved in the, in the real world. And then the members of Am Yisrael who are immersed in spiritual pursuit. And together, together we complete the picture. For we as a nation need both. Each one should complement the other, not be at each other's necks. (laughs) So the story goes about this business person who's out there in the dog-eat-dog world, and he stops off in the Beit Medrash where he sees his spiritual alter ego, the fellow who studies Torah all day that he supports. And he says to him, I'm out there in the trenches killing myself slaving away to be able to bring home profit? And you sit here, calm, peaceful, you study Torah. He says, that's not fair. It's not fair, he says. Why? Why do you get to enjoy life and I have to slave away and be out there fighting off all my adversaries in competition? And the student said, you know, life's getting kind of boring here. I actually wouldn't mind getting a piece of the action. And so they decide to switch roles for a week. The scholar will do the business. And the business person will do the scholar. Scholar's pursuit and work. So the story goes, they meet a week later. And the business person says, I can't sit here for another minute. He says, I'm done. I'm done. I need to get out there. I need need to be involved in that world of intensity where my adrenaline adrenaline gets pumped up and the scholar said i can't take anymore i'm wiped i need to be immersed in my spiritual pursuit i don't know if it's a true story it probably is or it could have been a true story it makes a point we always think the grass is greener in our neighbor's backyard but it actually isn't just looks that way the grass we have is actually the greenest for us that's what hashem has given us If it's our lot, we should appreciate and understand that in it we shall find fulfillment. So who was David HaMelech? 
Was he the powerful warrior or the prayerful, passionate singer? Who was David HaMelech? Will the real King David please rise? Says the Ma'am lawyers, he does did. Right here in Psalm 119, verse 171, David HaMelech has just risen. David HaMelech has now stood up and staked his claim. His claim to fame, his claim to fortune, what he wants out of life. Ever prayerfully grateful, ever expressive with spiritual poetry, David HaMelech says, do you know when it will flow from me? Do you know when it becomes second nature, like a well that gushes forth? I'll tell you when, he says. I don't need that rush of adrenaline. I'm on the battlefield because I have to be on the battlefield. I'm involved in the political intrigue of the royal court because I have to. That's my shlichut. That's my mission in life. And that's not what I really want, though. There's a beautiful and poignant story that's told about the Friedrich Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, and one of his most loyal chassidim, Rebchatcha Fagan, Yechezkel Fagan, who was brutally murdered by the Nazis, along with his wife and children. Rebchatcha Fagan was an extraordinary person, a man of tremendous learning, a man who had an appreciation for the intellectual nuances of, of Torah teaching and also appreciated all kinds of disciplines. He was a brilliant person, very worldly yet at the same time extremely pious and loyal to Hashem and Torah and Hasidus. Anyway, it's the difficult years where communist oppression is nearly unbearable. Maybe the story takes place in 1925 or 1926. The communist jaggernaut has now fully launched or unfurled its ugly wings and it seeks to stamp out any vestige of faith with a special hatred and venom reserved for Yiddishkeit. And the Friedrich and well-being and in the end nearly paid with his life. And many of us Hasidim did pay with their lives for their devotion to Yiddishkeit. Both of my father's grandfathers were never seen again. And Ibchacher is a devoted chassid of the Friedrich Rebbe, and he's doing what has to be done. And one day Ibchacher says, Rebbe, I don't have time to learn and to daven. I don't have time to engage in the spiritual pursuit that I so ardently crave. And the Friedrich Rebbe said, what should I say? I also don't have the time to devote to the study of Torah and to the holy art of prayer. I also don't have the time. They were both so caught up in this unbelievable battle for the existential survival of Yiddishkeit. And the Friedrich Rebbe began to weep. And then Ibchacha wept with the Rebbe. And together they wept. 
at the difficulty of their circumstances. And then, and then the Friedrich Eber dried his tears and said, there's work to be done. David HaMelech never shied away from the tasks at hand. David HaMelech never ignored the responsibility that Hashem or destiny had placed upon him. But David HaMelech yearned for something different. And he knew that when the time would come, that Tilamdeni Chukecha, that David HaMelech would be able to immerse himself. And through Yigir, through toil, he'd be able to be appreciative of the deepest messages and nuances of Yiddishkeit, David HaMelech knew, that would stimulate him fully. And as stimulated, David HaMelech means to bainos fosaitehila. My lips gush with praise, with appreciation. And that's what he really wanted. He sought not victory on the battlefield, but victory in the Beit Medrash. When he would be victorious in the proverbial wars of Torah, winning the debates rather than the battles. And this, my dear friends, is what David Amalek says When will my lips gush forth with Tehillah with praise? This was actually a fervent prayer. May it be your will. David says, I'll praise you. I'll praise you for whatever goodness you send my way. And if it's victory on the battlefield, I'm grateful, never ingrateful. But I'll be most grateful when I'm able to experience victory in the debate of Torah. That is the real David HaMelech. And this is fascinatingly contrasted by the next verse, verse 172, with David HaMelech continuing to speak about the virtues of Torah study, says, Ta'an l'shoini imrosecha. I'm going to translate this as, may my tongue proclaim. And you'll soon see why I use the word proclaim. May my, my tongue proclaim imrosecha, your words. Ki, because, chol mitzvaisecha tzedek. Because all of your words are righteous. What is the meaning of ta'am? So Rashi says, Kol aniyah. Whenever you find the notion of aniyah in Torah literature, despite the fact that in modern Hebrew, it primarily means to respond when asked. But in Torah literature, when you see the word aniyah, it's l'shoin kol rom. It indicates something that's said loudly. A loud voice to proclaim. Va'av l'kulam, and the proverbial father of them all, is halavim, the Levites. As it says, the Anu Halavim the Amru. This is a special mitzvah that Moshe Rabbeinu 
talks to the Jewish people about prior to his passing, twice in the Torah, in Deuteronomy. He says that on the first day of entrance to the land of Israel, the nation would assemble in a valley. And there would be two groups of Levites. Pardon me, the nation would assemble on two mountains, divide on two mountains. And there would be the Levites in the valley, and the Levites would turn to one and shower blessings on those who would follow Hashem's will, turn to the other and spill curses on those who might deviate from Hashem's will. Oror hagever, baruch, oror ha'ish, baruch ha'ish. Eleven curses. There's a lot to talk about. I don't want to get into that right now. The thing is this. The Levites had to say it out loud. Shouting is indelicate. It wasn't about shouting. There's a big difference between proclaiming something and shouting it. Shouting is almost like yelling. It has a certain hostility to it. It's almost aggressive. But proclaiming is indicative of great confidence or pridefulness in something. So because you're, you're, you're proud of something, you're loud about it. As they say, loud and proud. Proclamation. You know, like the, in the Middle Ages, hear ye, hear ye, a proclamation. So the word ta'an then is to proclaim. So Rashi says, Mitsuda's Tzian comments in parallel to Rashi. He says, yes. like I wondered why Rashi and Mitsudas don't mention the fact that when the firstling fruits are brought, it says, v'onisa v'amarta. You raise, you raise your voice and you declare or proclaim before God. So I was thinking, I was wondering about that. And then I saw something very interesting. The Mitzudah's David says, Tan koil tedaber. I'll speak loudly in a loud voice. L'shoini, my tongue will say, Because they're righteous things, they're right. Therefore, it's appropriate that they be spoken of in a loud voice. Ubekoil gadol. In a very audible way. So what does that mean? Why is it important for things to be spoken about loudly in an audible way? So the Ibn Ezra says, Ta'an elmadim rosecha. This is not about a proclamation for myself. It's not me proclaiming to God. It's a proclamation to others. I'm teaching others. He says, So that they will know. I know the mitzvahs are right. I want them to know the mitzvahs are the right thing, Art Tzedek. In other words, when we have the farmer bring the basket of fruit in the base of Migdash and express his thanks, he's not communicating with another mortal per se. It's about joyously expressing yourself before Hashem. I'm praising you, Hashem. I'm speaking to you, Hashem. But the Ibn Ezra says, here, you're communicating to others. 
You're saying something to somebody else. The Ma'amlois, and once again here without attribution, he says that this is the nature when you speak of things right. When you know you're saying what's true and right, you're not afraid to say it out loud because you know it's true and right. You are proud to stand by what you believe in. But when you're not being honest, when you don't really believe what you're saying and you're masquerading as if you identify with something or as if you're concerned about something, but you don't really feel that way. You don't think it's right. So then, Hamadabe b'mirma, somebody who speaks with guile or deceit, you're just saying it because you have to. So then it's balachash. It's called mumbling. You mumble things, but when you enunciate and speak about them clearly, it means you're confident about what you're saying. I've oftentimes thought that when people can't fully articulate themselves or aren't ready to articulate themselves, it's because they're unsure of themselves. And when it's something that's really important to them, when something that touches them personally and something that they feel conviction for, you'd be surprised how they suddenly find their voice. Some people are very timid by nature. They're afraid, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my confidence is misplaced. Maybe this isn't really true. Maybe it isn't right. I think it's right, but maybe it isn't. So a lack of confidence doesn't get expressed loudly or clearly. But when you're confident about something and you know it to be right, then you're proud to speak of it and share it with others. And that, my dear friends, is how the Mamelois frames this term. Now, if you marshal the explanation, the, the, the ideas of Rashi and the Mitsudas, and then you marry that to the Ibn Ezra's words, now you suddenly understand what this is about, a loud and proud communication, a proclamation, an educational proclamation, a proclamation for the purpose of sharing, of influencing others that's being made. Now, fascinatingly, the Radak introduces us to a bit of a different take. The Radak says, firstly, like, like we said, kind of fuses the commentary of Mitsudais with what Ibn Ezra says. He says, When I speak of your words, I speak to others, and I'm going to teach them. And then he says, But the master of a tradition, and I don't know who this master of tradition is. He interprets this as a syntax of song or praise. This is like poetic praise. It doesn't just mean to say something. It means almost to songfully, praisefully express yourself. In other words, My tongue will praise, will value, will show appreciation for your words. Kikulot said that because they're all right. Va'omar b'meseira ta'an gimel b'loshen shavach. This Balha Meseira 
this master of tradition, said that there are three places in which we find the word ta'an to have a permutation, a connotation of praise as well as proclamation. And the simon is Miriam, Lishoini, my tongue, and Ksil the fool. So what does Radak allude to over here? Well, obviously he's alluding to the fact that when it comes to Miriam singing the song of Az Yashir, which is found in Exodus 15, it says, Vata'an lohem Miriam. After Moshe Rabbeinu finished leading the men in song, Miriam and the woman, they began to praisefully express themselves, singing separately. Yeah, it's that old. The notion of singing separately is that old. According to some Rishonim, the notion of kol isha, men listening to women sing, being an act of, well, immodesty, dates back to the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. They believe it's a doiraisa. It's a biblical ordination. Just putting that out there. Anyway, it says, Vatan lahem Miriam. So most people who don't properly understand the terminology, the Hebrew terminology, and superimpose Ivrit terminology, Miriam answered them. Nobody asked Miriam answer, if to answer. She was, there was no question directed towards her. So there, Vatan means a song of praise. Moshe sang Shira. The men sang a song of praise. So did the women. Ta'an l'shoini. It's not just that my tongue speaks loudly. It's more than that. In other words, the Radak sees verse 172 as a continuation of verse 171 because what's happening here is that David HaMelech in verse 171 said, Tabainas and it was Tehila, so in continuation of gushing forth in a stream of praise, of prayer, Ta'an l'shoini my, my words become an expression of song, of praise for your words. And the third is a pasuk that's found in Mishle, Al Ta'an Chsil. Now, the thing is here, it does sound like you're answering. If a fool says foolish things to you, don't answer. Don't get into a texting war with a fool. Bad idea. You know, these Twitter skirmishes where people tweet things back and forth or say things. Just ignore foolish things. It's the smartest way to go. You can't win. You can't. Not with a fool. So the Sefer Yashmir called Elasse suggests that maybe it means al doesn't mean don't answer a fool. Where Adak sees it, in the name of the Baal HaMesorah, it means don't praise a fool for his foolishness. Sometimes we want to just praise people because, because we want to be on their good side. You know what I'm talking about. It just, it's expedient. So we'll praise them for foolish things. And Shlomo HaMelech in his wisdom said that's a bad idea. At any rate, the notion of ta'an here definitely has a connotation of praise as well. So David Melech is proclaiming 
He's speaking loudly to others, but more so, David Melech is actually, at this point, speaking in a manner of what we would call praising or praise towards Hashem. And my dear friends, today we will conclude with the Hasidic interpretation. Beautiful teachings of Hasidus on this word, Ta'an L'Shoyni Imrosecha. So let me begin by telling you or sharing with you the words of the Alter Rebbe, which are found in the magnum opus of his memorim, known as Torah Or, in Parshas Yisrael. There, the Alter Rebbe says about this notion, Ta'an L'Shoyni Imrosecha, he says that every word of the Pesukim of Tanakh, of the sacred scripture of the Jewish people, and all the words of the Mishnah, which are the oral laws or rules of Judaism, as well as the Midrashim, which freely translated are the homiletical teachings of our sages. They were all communicated by God to Moses at Sinai. And even though the Gemara will attribute this opinion or idea to one sage or the other, the house of Shammai, a school of Shammai says, even though that's the case, in truth, says the Alter Rebbe, these are all the Imras Hashem, they are all the words of Hashem that were given to Meish Rabbeinu at Sinai that simply are diffused for us, to us, through the mouth of that particular sage. So the diffusion comes through a particular sage. But the light itself, that's from Hashem, as spoken to Moses. This is implied by the verse which is found in the prophecies of Yeshayo Hanavi Isaiah, who said, Dvorai asher samti My words, my words, says God, that I placed in your mouth. My words placed in your mouth. When you study Torah, it's Hashem's words. You do not connect with Beshamay or Beshilel, you connect with Hashem. When you look out the window and you see the heavens, you're not seeing the window, you're seeing the heavens. It's the window that allows you to see the heavens. When you listen to the words of Torah through a Rebbe, you're not listening to the words of a Rebbe, you're listening to the words of Hashem. It's just that the Rebbe becomes the, the spigot. He becomes the diffusion point through which Hashem's words are coming to you. Dalta Rebbe says that this power, this wherewithal, this incredible ability was granted to Klal Yisrael, to the Jewish people. That the words that emanate from their mouths as they, as they study Torah should actually become the word of Hashem as it was given Lamesh Sinai. So how does that happen? I mean, let's be real. My words are divine, godly. 
My words are my words. How could a person be so sure of themselves, even arrogant, to say, if I said it, it's God's words. So the Alter Rebbe says that the ability to channel the words of Hashem is achieved when a person is able to relinquish or let go of their own ego. If it's about you, forget about it. You're not a reflection of Mount Sinai. You're a reflection of yourself. These are your ideas. You are emoting or self-expressing, using Torah concepts. What you say is not Torah Misinai because it's Torah from you. But if you can become that glass, if you can surrender your ego to Hashem, if you can become transparent so that it's not about you and you don't have to be right necessarily ever, it's about the truth, wherever the truth may be found. So when you're looking for the truth of the Torah, when you're able to get past yourself, then these are the words which flow from your mouth as if they were yours, but they're really not your words. The Torah is Hashem's words. They're Hashem's words that flow. It's like you become God's stenographer. It's a divine dictation. And the verse is ta'an l'shoini, may my lips or my tongue, to be more accurate, proclaim, imra secho, your words, Hashem's words. May I be transparent. May it never be about me. May it always be about the objective, godly truth. That's how we should be studying Torah. Not simple. In any way, shape, or form. There's a mimer from the Rebbe that's found in Sefer Rabbi Marim Tavshin Chai. The mimer opens with the words, God is close to those who call out to him. And the Rebbe begins by quoting this teaching of the Alter Rebbe from Torah Or. And then the Rebbe says that in the study of Torah, broadly speaking, there are two very different dimensions, two different ways or approaches. One is to know the wisdom of Torah. To know the wisdom of Torah. To, to develop, fully appreciate, unfurl and understand. And that comes through deep contemplation, conversation, give and take, argument, analysis. And then there's another form of Torah study where I'm not trying to understand the deeper idea in Torah per se, but I'm trying to apply the Torah. I guess you could, not precisely, but approximate the notion of theoretical science and practical research. The practical researcher is looking for a cure for something specific. The theoretical scientist is just fascinatingly analyzing things. Oftentimes, practical things come from theoretical science. In Israel, the Weizmann Institute is an institute of theoretical science. That institute has provided more respite and relief for humankind than perhaps any other like it in the world. 
many of the theoretical scientific discoveries have directly led to breakthroughs in the areas of healthcare and technology. But it's not devoted to that. They're not researching for a particular thing. Whereas people who raced to create a vaccine, as they call it, for COVID, were trying specifically to create a vaccine for COVID. So here's a person who's learning the Torah because he, he needs to know what to do. Instruction has to be given. A question has to be answered. So in both of these different dimensions, there are people who are stimulated more or less, people who take the time to contemplate, to analyze more deeply in those who perhaps by training or by nature or both will tend to be more superficial about their learning or understanding or analysis. One who is closer to the truth, more accurate, and one who's less accurate. One who strives for closeness to Hashem, performs this act of Torah study with a profound sense of Yirat Shemayim, of awe and reverence for heaven, or not. But the Rebbe says that broadly speaking, it is the person who devotes themselves to the higher truth. It is the person who becomes transparent of their own ego or importance that will ultimately be able to plumb the depths and reach the profoundest, the clearest, and the truest conclusions. And the Rebbe said, this is what David HaMelech meant with the words, Ta'am l'shoinim rosecha. Did you know that there is a teaching that's attributed to the yeshiva of Elio Hanovi? This is also found in the Yalkut Shmoni that says, Kol Anybody who reads aloud, studies Torah, God does so correspondingly. However, if we get into greater detail, the real notion of Tan L'Shoni Imra Secha is when a person is able to set themselves aside entirely and focus exclusively on the actual Torah material. In the most precise way, by focusing on the actual syntax, verbiage, all words that were uttered by Hashem through His prophets. As it says, God said these things saying, and the people said it along with God. And they said, At least according to one opinion in the Medrash. Now, on the surface, a person who is able to repeat the Torah subject in their own words, you would think, are studying in a more profound fashion. They relate to the subject to the point that it becomes their thing. But the Rebbe says, really, it's not so. Because when it's your thing, it's still about you. When you repeat the words verbatim, there's a far greater level of self-abnegation, of renunciation of self. It becomes about God, not about you. And the Rebbe says, in the end, that is what we seek. We seek the deepest relationship with Hashem. And the deepest relationship with Hashem comes 
when it's not about us at all. When we can self-transcend. So when it's our understanding, we're always stuck within our understanding. But when it's Hashem's words, that is the notion of us setting our own self-importance or ego aside and focusing singularly on the message. And that, my dear friends, is the meaning of ta'am l'shoinim rosecha. Ta'am l'shoinim rosecha ultimately means that a person becomes so united with God that it's not only like an idea you understand so much so that you express it in your own fashion. Because although in that situation you also understand and became united with the Torah, the depth of your Torah study is limited to the extent of your own intellect. And therefore, the oneness with God is incomplete because it's within the frame of your existence. But when we recite the words of Torah, it's God's words. Then we set aside our individual tools of perception. We forget about our ideas, how we understand, but we allow ourselves to become immersed or absorbed into Hashem's words. And when that happens, then there's nothing, nothing that interposes between us because we become we become as crystal clear as the glass through which we can see. Hashem's Torah suddenly shines forth through us. And that's the meaning of ta'am l'shoini imrasecha, that the tongue is a proverbial blank canvas, which is filled entirely and singularly with the pristine words of HaKadosh Baruch and that, my dear friends, is the spoken word that David HaMelech alludes to. The ideas that he shares with us as we near the completion of Kapitol, Kofiotes, and verses 171 and verses 172. May it be Hashem's will that it be less about us and more about Hashem. And that as we transcend self, and instead of being hypersensitive and getting offended by everybody, as we are today, unfortunately, instead of obsessing over how I think or feel about it, instead allow ourselves to become absorbed into the greatness and grandeur of Hashem's Torah, for that will set us free. And that devotion will set all of us free because it will catalyze the coming of Mashiach and the era of universal knowledge, knowledge of the truth, knowledge of the Creator. I and by Yiru, literal, actual, and experiential knowledge and awareness of Hashem, b'mheira obi ameinu speedily, and in our days, amen. Thank you so much for joining today. And if you aren't subscribed yet, please subscribe and be sure to enable notifications. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thank you.